your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Megan Von Fricken. Megan is a licensed clinical social worker with a virtual psychotherapy practice where she specializes in helping people recover from religious harm. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks, Carrie. I'm happy to be here. Um, before I hit record, Megan and I were talking about how we feel like we're friends and yet we've never met in person. And so it's it's fun to have this um, a bit of technology to connect us across state lines and share this conversation with the little corner of the internet that this reaches. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you're here. And I will start with asking you about wellness, what that means to you and how you engage in wellness yourself. Yeah, so I was thinking about this before we got on today and it's such a, a a broad question and a good question that I'm sure has a million different answers but I think for me when I think of the concept of wellness I think of being at peace and experiencing contentment and experiencing calm because I think for those factors to exist there has to be wellness in multiple areas of life, mm. whether it's spirituality, how your body is feeling, your mental health, etc. So that's, I think that's what I would say yeah. wellness means to me. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that right away you're touching on the fact that it is such a broad question, and that's intentional on my part because it goes in so many different directions when I ask it. Um, and that, so because you work with religious harm, I would love to at least start with exploring what wellness in the realm of spirituality looks like for you or how you guide other people who are recovering from religious harm into a safer version of spirituality and spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. I think religious harm fundamentally disconnects us from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think for many people who have experienced religious harm, they are familiar with rigid rules, black and white thinking, us versus them. And so it creates this rigidity around your relationship with others, with the world in general, and with yourself. And so to be spiritually well, I think it's about reconnecting. First, reconnecting mm. with yourself. And once you reconnect with yourself, or the authentic self, I don't know if you use that terminology in your mm. work or not, but mm -hmm. I use that term a lot, the authentic self. You reconnect with your authentic self then it gives you space and freedom to authentically connect with others yeah. and with the world around you. 
So I think it's healing that harm and it's creating more flexibility in how you think about things. It's Mm -hmm. developing compassion specifically for yourself, but also for others, because I don't know about you. I'm assuming your experience was probably similar, but even though we were taught to love others, it was very transactional in the church where it was based on conversion Mm -hmm. and saving souls to our brand of religion. So it wasn't really about the person. It was, it was very goal oriented. Yeah. So developing that compassion for ourselves, but also compassion to really love others, all others, regardless Mm. of whether they're following these rules. Yeah. Yes. And I, what keeps coming to mind as you're saying this is how many of these words that you've used are words that I at least have had to reclaim, even words as simple as like love and peace because love <laughs> within you were um grew up evangelical is that right yes, like yeah. a form of um it, me too um and what you're saying about this sort of like conditional version of love so resonates with me and that love as defined by or at least as it kind of showed up within the evangelical circles I was in was not how I would define love now you know like there's this idea that well if I really love this person I will confront them about their sin and their lifestyle yeah um is that really love (laughs) you know um I'm wondering how you've come to reclaim or redefine some of these words some language that's gotten at least for me, like was really loaded. Mm-hmm. It's it's still a process for me. Yeah. I still feel that that um, certain words in particular can still be re- very loaded um, or triggering. Um, but I think what I've noticed is as I've accepted myself more fully that it's allowed me to accept others and all of their humanity and as that acceptance has occurred kind of through this spectrum that extends from me out to those around me I think it's naturally reshaped how I interact Mm. with some of this language Mm. um I mean, love is completely different now, even when I think about romantic love and friendship love. And the church like to talk a lot about these different nuances of love. I don't know if you were taught about agape love and (laughs) all of those nuances, but I I don't even really see it in these binaries anymore. Mm -hmm. I just see love as acceptance and warmth and compassion and understanding and whether that's extended towards somebody you're in an intimate relationship with or in a friendship with or just somebody just out in the world 
love is love. It doesn't have to be put in these specific categories. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's as I've worked on healing this relationship with myself, it's, it's just naturally shifted how I interact with terminology. Mm. Yeah. I think that's so powerful. And yes, I did grow up with all these, like really picking apart the original languages of the Bible to like, (laughs) which I am not a theologian, but I imagine that there is actually a lot of beauty within the original Greek language that we've kind of like weaponized in a really um, unfortunate way. Um, again, I can't really speak to that, but yeah, I I agree that what you said at the very beginning about the rigid thinking, it just kind of gets reinforced by this like really limited view of language. And, and once we can come to a more expansive kind of acceptance of love as this bigger concept, not so rigid. Yeah, I'm getting a little abstract as I I'm finding that I tend to do um, when I'm talking to people, but I'm going to bring myself back to center. And I'm really curious about this authentic self that you've talked about that you keep referring to. And well, first of all, I'd love to know what that means for you. And then second, I'm curious about your relationship to your authentic self while you are in evangelicalism and throughout your kind of deconstruction slash deconversion process, what that's been like. So um, I use a lot of parts work, which is internal family systems theory. I think you do too. I do. Yeah. But feel free to explain it because people listening might not understand or be familiar with it. So internal family systems is this idea that as a person, we are comprised of many parts or many sub-selves in a way that can take over and run the show, but they're separate from our authentic self. So if you've ever heard yourself saying, a part of me really wants to go over here and do this, but another part of me wants to be that, you have two parts of yourself that are competing. When I tell people that example, they're like, oh yeah, I can, Mm -hmm. I know I've done that before. So perfectionism can be a part or people pleasing can be a part. Even addiction can be a part. Addiction Mm -hmm. is very protective for people in a lot of ways. Um, And so we look at these parts that we may historically consider to be bad. I don't like that part of myself. That's a bad part. We don't Mm. consider any parts bad, but we do get to know them and the role that they take on in keeping us safe because every part develops to keep us safe. Our authentic self is at the center of all of that. And it is um, the the part, if you will, that sort of runs the show. So when we're attuned or in tune with our authentic self, we're not being controlled by some of these other parts, which sometimes take on maladaptive behaviors. Mm -hmm. I think high control religion buries the authentic self. Yeah. I think that the rules and the the rigidity and the structure and the do's and the don'ts 
create many parts that then go out into the world and function. So we might have this evangelizing part, or we might have a judgmental part. I know I certainly did and do still deal with Mm -hmm. a judgmental part that I think came out of that religion. Um, And so the authentic self is who I am without the noise of all of those other parts. And it's the truest, it's my truest self. Um, So I've heard from, you know, many clients and many people coming out of high control religion saying, I don't even know who I really am. I don't even know what I want. I don't know what I like. That's because they've been told all their lives what to do and what to to like and (laughs) what to experience. So for me, I had to learn that. Like, what do I want in my relationships? Um, what do I enjoy? What do I like? Kind of who am I? That big existential question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for that's how I kind of look at the authentic self. And it's sort of like a, a de-layering process. Like I've had to peel back all of these layers and get to know all of these parts and all of their roles to get to who my authentic self is. And then that's essentially the work that I try to help clients do too. That's mm-hmm. when we meet together, we have conversations, they tell me their stories. We talk about, okay, what part was showing up there? Mm-hmm. What was that part trying to protect you from? Or what was that part's goal? Or just yeah. like it's its own person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I love IFS as well. I think it complements um the specifically the recovery process from high control religion very well because so many parts of us were um, demonized or considered again here's the rigid black and whiteness of the way evangelical kind of thought control happens but that parts are bad I recommend um, Dick Schwartz who was kind of the I would say put modern language to IFS. I don't think he invented it by any means. It's a pretty like ancient concept, but um, his book, No Bad Parts, is actually a book that I often recommend for people who are recovering from high control religion. And it's not a religious book by any means. Um, But yeah, I find this a really powerful approach. And I'm curious for you, what have been some of the ways that you've come in contact with your authentic self that you've started to build this relationship with this like core part of you. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're talking about IFS and our internal family systems and Dick Schwartz, the other, um, I actually think I may have heard of the term authentic self first, which is a little bit of a different perspective, is in reading Dr. Shafali's book, A Radical Awakening. Have you heard of that Mm, book? I have not, but I will, I'll put all of these things in the show notes and I'm going to write that one down. Yeah, that book is excellent. I mean, that book changed my life. I think when I was first unwinding from a lot of 
what I would call these parts, I discovered that book and it talks a lot about our culture. It wasn't really talking about religion, although religion was an aspect of it, but Dr. Shafali was raised in the Indian culture. And she talks a lot about patriarchy and about societal conditioning and how, and patriarchy hurts men too. Mm. Um, I think the focus of her book was a lot towards women, um, but how our culture really causes us to divorce from ourselves or from our authentic self. And so looking at just the culture in general almost created a pathway to understanding also how the religion was a tool in some ways, or maybe patriarchy was a tool of the religion. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's all connected. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I started to understand, I think some of how these layers formed, I began to learn about things like codependency and, you know, codependency, I think a lot of people, I'm curious to know how you think about it or describe it. I think a lot of people think it's emotional neediness or emotional Mm -hmm. dependency. And I don't really describe it that way. I think a lot of codependent people are actually extremely independent, but they have to control the world around them and control the lives of others to -hmm. maintain their sense of safety in the world. Um, they often have poor boundaries. They often want to take care of people because other people's, they're not okay unless other people are okay. So that's sort Mm -hmm. of how I think of codependency. Is that how you describe it? Yes. That last statement you said is usually exactly how I describe it, that codependency in a very basic term is if you're not okay, I'm not okay. If you're okay. I'm okay. Like at its most basic, it's like this relational sort of tug of war. And I love that you make that distinction between what we often think of codependency as this emotional neediness, um, because that is not how it showed up in my life. I was a very independent person because that is how I stayed safest. And it's how I, yeah, how I learned to make myself okay so that other people could be okay, too, if that makes sense. That, like, I needed to stay in control so that the people around me could stay regulated um, without – I'm talking in very vague terms because I'm just – it's not like I don't talk about my family relationships super publicly, and, and so I'll just leave it at that. But, but yes, I – I love that explanation of codependency. Well, and I think that we could just say very broadly that we learn codependency in our family. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's, Absolutely. We don't even have to go into details to know that that <laughs> is the case. And yeah. so um, for me, reconnecting with my authentic self was about unlearning codependency. I would say that was mm. the core thing that had to happen codependency is a part again going back to parts language Mm -hmm. but when your whole world is wrapped up in the other and another person saving the world whatever it is is something else you aren't even considering 
your relationship with yourself. What do I want? What do I need? So reconnecting with my authentic self, begin with asking those questions. Maybe not starting with, well, what do you want? What do you need? How can I take care of you? Mm. What do I want? What do I need? How can I take care of me? Which I think probably yeah. circles right back to that conversation around wellness, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, codependency. Yes, existing in our family of origin or originating in our family of origin. And I've been thinking a lot recently, I'd be curious your your thoughts and feedback um, as someone who grew up in a religious setting. Um, I think something that is maybe, yeah, I don't know if it's unique to high control religion or not, but that God or the church is this like other attachment figure. And we haven't even <laughs> talked about attachment, but I think when we talk about codependency, I mean, not to get too much into like therapy language, but we we have primary connections with our caregivers typically, which is where we often learn that codependent behavior. Um, but I think for those of us who grew up within high control religious settings, we've got this whole other entity that teaches us how to be in relationship. Um, Because I see codependency showed up a lot within my, I guess, within my spiritual life that I needed to make sure that everything I was doing was in service of making sure God didn't lose his temper, (laughs) right? Like um, to put it like so (laughs) in like kind of childish terms, but essentially like I need to do everything right because I am so anxiously attached to this divine being that I need him to be okay with me in order for me to feel okay within myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I know from talking with friends who were not raised this way, it just sounds so ludicrous to people who don't, weren't raised this way and don't understand it. But anyway, I'll stop talking and, and hear your thoughts on all of that. No, I totally agree with that. And I talk a lot about attachment theory in my work as well. And I think that high control and authoritarian religions, which are one and the same, fundamentally disrupt attachment. Because mm. when you're born and you're already slotted as being a sinner in having yes. the nature and obedience and compliance is prioritized over nurturance and attunement, that is going to fundamentally disrupt the attachment mm-hmm. that you have with your caregivers. Mm-hmm. And then, as you are pointing out, the attachment both with your parents and then with you becomes reliant on this, this patriarchal God figure who's very moody and temperamental mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and is always watching. That's the thing I've been thinking about lately, how we're told that God is always watching. And so it does, it creates this anxiety around the attachment. And I have to be good. I have to be good all the time. I have to follow the rules. And the rules are very specific. You don't get to think for yourself about what feels right or what's in alignment again with your authentic self you are told what is acceptable and what is not acceptable 
And if you don't do the acceptable thing, then this father God figure is going to be displeased with you. Mm -hmm. And I think many children growing up in these religions experience this, but I think it's really weaponized. God's going to be mad at you. God's going to be angry at you. You're going to disappoint Heavenly Father. Like These are all phrases Mm -hmm. that I grew up with, which just seemed very normal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and we could absolutely talk (laughs) for hours, I'm sure, about the harm specifically for children receiving these messages. Um, and and I don't know if we want to or not. I want to leave space for us to talk also more about, you know, what it's like to recover yeah. from that. But I guess on that, on that note, since you do work in this area and we have, you know, some similar history, um, I'm curious how you support people specifically who have been raised in the high control groups or authoritarian religions. You know, what are some, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, as you're kind of talking about, you know, we could probably talk about the harms of children receiving these messages for hours. I think that's so true, but I actually think that is where I start Mm. with the recovery process because when those messages start so young, it fundamentally shapes how you interact with yourself and the world around you. So people, I think it's a lot of, it's a lot of validating and educating like to understand that this was very harmful. This was very dysfunctional. I think many people who come into the deconstruction space and this was me totally too, kind of minimize the trauma aspect of it. I don't even know if I still fully own mm. <laughs> the religious trauma label, even though I think it, it does fit because so much of it was intertwined with family of origin trauma Um, attachment trauma and this development of I I would say I have more of an avoidant attachment style avoidant attachment style and codependency that I became extremely high functioning I I when I think used to think about people who were traumatized I would think about people who are really struggling with day-to-day life experiences or having flashbacks or having intrusive thoughts. And that is very much the experience of somebody, you know, who is traumatized. But I think codependency is built on attachment trauma and religious harm and these religious experiences create attachment trauma. And so it's all intertwined. And so Mm -hmm. I think when people come in who may not feel comfortable with that terminology or even like I'm not traumatized. It's like, well, but let's look at the religious harm and how it shaped you shaped your family experience from this early age, which then carried on into your adult experience and your adult relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really resonate with that. It took me a while to 
own the term trauma for myself as well. Um, And I think for me, part of that was the harm that was done is so kind of covert often. I mean, yes, it is. It's just so interwoven with kind of every detail of your life if you grow up within these types of religions that it's for me I can start to get to this very existential place of like well if I'm really pulling apart the harm you know it's just so interwoven and so it's not that there is one traumatic event right and then this is complex trauma right trauma that happens within those relationships attachment trauma complex trauma probably very if not one and the same at least very similar um But yeah, it took me a long time to even feel like I, I guess, deserved to use the word trauma for myself, that the harm was significant enough that I could consider it trauma. And Um, that's even an aspect of the trauma. I don't even know if I deserve that label. Because deserve is one of those words that I'm still Mm. trying to reclaim because growing up, I felt like I didn't deserve anything. You know, you're not deserving. You're not worthy of God's love. It's it's this amazing gift that he's choosing to give you, but you don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. And so to even acknowledge that I have suffered is a hard thing to do because that's another that's another word that's tricky because suffering mm-hmm. is a good thing in this this culture you know suffering is yeah um conflated with something that's character producing and being refined by god and get being an opportunity to grow closer to god and so when you say i didn't know if i deserved <laughs> that label or to own that label I mean, that's, that's a trauma response too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And coming back to the the child stuff, I guess, I guess I'm not going to pull away from it. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I know within IFS, internal family systems, the way that I practice it, it's a lot of, um, it can be, I think once you start to what we would call an IFS unburden, some of these parts, meaning really understand them and teach these parts. They don't have to take on these protective roles. Once you start to do that, you get to this typically a really wounded inner child. Um, Yeah. I'm curious kind of how you either in your own life and, and this can be sensitive, so feel free to avoid talking about yourself, but maybe with your clients, how you kind of meet that inner child and, and what you notice for those who've been raised within these religious environments, you know, what, what do you tend to find and how do you take care of that inner child's part? Yeah, that's such a good question. I know when I was going through my own therapy at the height of learning about codependency and the authentic self and, and deconstructing, um, I found a four-year-old child within myself and the age was so clear to me when Mm -hmm. I discovered her and having the visual of this child actually helped me send so much compassion towards myself that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have had for the adult version of myself. Yes. 
I still struggle with extending (laughs) compassion Mm -hmm. towards the adult version of myself. Um, But there's something about identifying that child part that allows for love and gentleness and kindness to show up and nurturance that we may not have gotten for ourselves and that's probably why that child part is there Mm. honestly um but allowing space for those qualities to develop but have it be focused towards you even though it's sort of towards this part so it feels less threatening in some way Mm -hmm. um and I do the same thing with my clients you know so a lot of my clients, I think because of pop culture and kind of psychology becoming a mainstream thing, they're like kind of come in with this preconceived idea of this inner child work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of them are very resistant to that because they're yes. like, what do you mean the inner child? Or they've right. had bad experiences around the inner child before. But the thing I like about internal family systems, as you were talking about the unburdening of these protective parts, if you go right to trying to find your inner child, it's going to stay hidden away Mm -hmm. because it's not a safe space yet. And you, you haven't, um, you haven't gotten to know the parts that are trying to keep it really protected when you give those parts room to know that it's a safe space and the inner child just kind of naturally reveals itself then there's space to to work with it and to extend those those caregiving qualities and i know when i was in my own therapy um and this is something i do with my clients too it's sort of asking what does that child need because typically, mm-hmm. I know when I first saw her, she was in a dark room all alone. But then when I think about what does she need to be more comfortable? What does she need to feel safer? Well, she wants a blanket and she wants a light and a cozy bed and a window and all of these things. And you start creating that in your mind. That changes your you at a nervous system level. That's shifting yeah. how that traumatized part of you is now experiencing the world because you're actually visualizing and thus creating safety for it. Mm, yes. Yeah. I think that's so important. I I mean, we could spend a whole nother episode talking about nervous system work, which I think is huge. It's all intertwined, at least in how I practice and sounds like how you practice. But yeah, connecting with my inner child has really helped me to actually connect with what you call the authentic self too, is considering, okay, what did that child like to do before she learned to disconnect completely from herself? What did she like? Like for me, it was animals and being outside and reading and writing. And so that was like one of the gateways to who am I now? Well, I'm still, she's still in there. This inner child still exists within me. And actually, wait, I still like those things. That is often a way that I coach my clients too in like learning about themselves. Well, what were you like as a, 
as a child before all this other stuff developed. And, and sometimes, certainly, the trauma happens so at such a young age before language is developed that there, even in early childhood, there's still no concept of self um, or what you like. Um, so it's not always that simple, but I think that, yeah, connecting to that younger part is so powerful. Um, and it's, it's really what I find to be common is it's really hard not to be compassionate towards a child, yeah. at least in some way. <laughs> um, and that can help bridge that, the gap between the young self and the older self, um, to bring compassion into me right now as an adult and taking it out of the um the cognitive level of thinking which I know you being a yoga instructor you are mm-hmm. operating from a bottom up which mm-hmm. is you know nervous system up to kind of the top part of your brain yes. which is your thinking brain where language lives and all of that and that's why talk therapy has its limitations because we're not getting to that deeper part of our brain where trauma tends to be stored um but I think when we're able to create safety for our our nervous system and I know we were just scratching the surface of that (laughs) but it does allow us to extend that self-compassion to mm-hmm. that child version of ourselves. Yes. Yes. And and one last little bit that I'll add on here too by for myself and this is, you know, not everyone's experience, but connecting to that compassion for myself, my the child allowed me to has is a process of allowing me to have much more compassion towards my caregivers, my family, um, which I know at the very beginning you talked about this acceptance of ourselves leads to acceptance of other people. It can lead to, not that we accept the harm or are okay with the harm, but that we, when we start to see all of our own parts and that there's a core authentic self within each of us, we can see that in other people as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's so true. And I think that that is, you know, hardest probably to do with the people who have harmed us so deeply. Um, But as we heal, we can we can also recognize the wounded parts in them Mm. and then the protected parts, the protective parts that did the harm then to Mm. others and how much of this is generational and learned and passed down and yeah. 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 Well, I know we're we're just about out of time and and like you said we're just scratching the surface, but to close us out on maybe like a little bit of a lighter note and bringing wellness into the practical, what is what is wellness looking like for you in real practical terms right now, whether it's like things you're doing or reading or um yeah. So I, one thing I learned about myself is that I need spaciousness in the mornings. So my mornings are kind of sacred to me. Um, it was 
critical that I began my own business and started a practice in order to support that type of lifestyle Uh from Bingsell. Um, But that was a big part of it. That was a big motivating factor. And so even though I still get up pretty early, I don't start working typically until late morning so that I can have time to read. I can have time to journal. I can have time to drink my three cups of coffee in bed. Mm -hmm. Um, My routine does change. Um, I'm self-diagnosed with ADHD. And so I've learned that if I try to stick to a routine, a specific routine, for too long or if it just doesn't feel good, it sort of expires in a way, um, then that's not that's not feeling good to me anymore. So I have to actually often reassess what feels good to me. Mm-hmm. And again, that brings us full circle to being connected to our bodies when we've been so disconnected from what our own wants and needs are. So sometimes I don't read and sometimes I don't journal. I always have coffee. That's just mm-hmm. never going to stop <laughs> Yep. (laughs) But um, that's what I'm doing right now. And I think that beyond that, just asking myself on a daily basis, what do you want and need this morning Mm. is is what I'm doing to support my own wellness. Yeah, I love that. I I totally resonate with that morning um, being so important. And that seems to be a theme. There's some episodes that haven't yet been released to the world where this is coming up that the morning time is just so important to, I don't know if it's a therapist thing, um, but, but yeah. And I see, I think I see a little kitty in the background. I know they're very important to you. <laughs> That's Fitzgerald and Zelda's also here somewhere. So yes, my little fur babies are definitely yes. a source of wellness for me. Mm-hmm. Um, as I know, you have a fur, yes. a, a paw person in your life as well. I absolutely <laughs> do. Yes, I know. Everyone knows about her. I, I joke, um, but it's not really a joke that you don't really know me until you know my dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, Megan, I am so glad that we connected and uh, such a rich conversation. I'm sure we'll have so many more. So thank you for being here. Yeah. So thank you for having me. This has been great. Yeah. If people want to follow your work, cause you put out some really great content on the internet, where can people find you? Um, so right now I'm most active on Instagram. And so my handle is reclaimingself.therapy. You can search for my name. I think I'm the only Megan Von Fricken in the world. Mm-hmm. And we'll um, link, I'll link this too in the show notes. Yeah. So if you just do a Google search, it'll bring up my website and I've been doing some blogging on there and then I also have a private group a religious harm recovery group on Facebook um, that you can access going to my website there and links on there or you can just search for it on Facebook and it should pop up awesome good stuff out there all right thank you so much Megan all right thank you Carrie have a good day This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.